maybe have memorized the Ten Commandments, uh, but maybe we miss exactly what the Ten Commandments really are. I mean, there's a lot of do's and don'ts, and as we continue to look through Exodus, there's going to be a lot more than these ten of laws and regulations and rules to follow for Israel in this covenant relationship with God. So what's up with these ten? Well, it's like God's top ten list. Right? These ten summarize something about God that gives us a little bit of a profile. Okay? We're used to this. If you are a young man and you're interested in a girl, it would, you would do well to find out what she likes before taking her on a first date where you do everything you like. Right? You take her to where you like to eat and find out she's allergic. And then you take her to a movie that you like to watch and find out she falls asleep during those. And then, you know, you take her, you get her some flowers. You find out she doesn't like flowers or something. Or, you know, why'd you cut those or something? You know, whatever. You find out ahead of time, right? What does she like? What doesn't she like? If you're a family and you're going to have a special guest over the house, do you just cook them whatever you want, or do you, if you can, if you're able, do you try to find out, hey, what do they like to eat? What kind of food do you like? And it, we don't feel like it's very helpful when they're like, meh, anything. Like, oh, give me some help here. Do you have any allergies? Do you have any aversions? Do you have special things that you actually really like? Why do we do that? We do that because when we're accommodating a guest, we want to sort of, in a sense, lay out the red carpet for them, right? Roll it out for them to make it an enjoyable experience for them, right? Now, God is saying, we're going to be in a relationship. I've already scared the wits out of you on the mountain, and you've promised me, we'll obey! Okay, but you don't know how to obey, because you don't know what I like, and you don't know what I don't like. And it's not enough that you grew up with the Egyptian gods and what they liked, because I'm not them. It doesn't matter who you thought of in the past or what your upbringing is. You're going to have to adjust your alignment of expectations to me. So God is saying, I'm going to give you a little profile, a top ten list. There's going to be other stuff, but there's this top ten list so we can start this relationship on the right foot so you, need, so you can understand who I am, what I'm like. So we're going to see that in the book of Exodus Chapter 20. Chapter 20. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand and we'll make sure someone gets you a Bible. Exodus is not hard to find. It's the second book in the Bible. We're finding ourselves this morning right at the top of the 20th chapter. God doesn't start out with commandment number one. He starts out with an introductory statement to set up the commandments. And here's how it goes. And God spoke all these words, saying, verse 2, I am the I am. You remember when you see Lord in all caps like that? That's the I am. That's Yahweh. The name that he gave Exodus at the burning, uh, gave Moses at the burning bush. I am the Lord. I am the I am, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So it begins with, here's who I am and what I've done. May I remind you? The reminder, the remembrance, right? Who I am, I'm the great I am, 
who's done this for you. I've brought you out of slavery. The Ten Commandments are what you're going to be because of who I am. The Ten Commandments are what you're going to do because of what I've done. Okay? So the Ten Commandments are God's top ten list, so to speak, of how his people are to function in response to the kind of God that he is, the kind of person that he is, and the kind of thing that he's done for them. So, God is saying, you must be what you must be because I am who I am. Because I am who I am, you must be what you must be. And he's going to give us ten things to bring that home. Ten words or ten commandments. And they describe for us not just a random list of do's and don'ts, but a profile of what God is like and who he is. These are his likes. These are his dislikes, to put it very mildly, right? These are his aversions, and these are the things that he wants to see in a relationship with people. J. Alec Mateer, uh, a world-renowned commentator, wrote on this opening statement, verses 1 and 2, and, and dealing with the whole Ten Commandments, the whole two tablets. He says, this, this teaches us about the character of God, and it triggers in us this image-bearing that we have. You remember back in Genesis, God created us in his own image. We're like little mirrors that are supposed to reflect what God is like. And he's saying, if you're going to reflect what I am like, you're going to behave and act in a certain way. You're going to bear my image in a certain way. This is ingrained in us. When a little junior high kid or younger loves some pop star, right, or an athlete, and they start dressing like them, wearing their jersey, playing their songs all the time, combing their hair like them, wearing the jeans the same way, getting the same kind of sneakers. That's communicating, I want to be like this person that I kind of idolize. God is saying, that's not wrong. It's only wrong when you do it with a pop star. Do it with me. Know what I like. What do I like? What do I think? How do I act? And live like that. Bear my image in this particular way. And Matir continues to say that we're not truly human until we do that. You were created to be an image bearer, and if you don't bear his image, you're not functioning in the way that you need to be, and therefore you're not truly human. You're not living what you're supposed to live if you're not following the profile of what God is like. Okay? So God lays out these Ten Commandments so we can reflect, like mirrors, what He's like what he expects, what he desires. And real quick, before we dive into each one of those, I want to show you how he concludes it in verses 18 to 21. Why does he give them these commandments? He wants their obedience. He wants them to follow this and obey it because they fear him. It says in verse 18, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off, way away from that edge. You remember those signposts that they put out? Here's the edge. They're like, I don't even want to be next to the edge. I want to go back as far as I can. Then what do they say? They said to Moses, verse 19, 
You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So you remember the old movie, Charlton Heston goes up in the mountain and it's kind of a private session between God and Moses and God kind of writes with his finger in the tablets and he's like, go deliver these to the people. Nope. God says, you will have no other gods before me. In front of everybody. And after those ten statements, they tell Moses, no more of this, man. You go up into the cloud and you come back and deliver us his, his message. We can't handle the weight of his words. We'll die. So verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear. That's funny. <laughs> do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you. Don't fear. He's only doing this so you'll fear. Right? So why? Well, because there's two kinds of fears. One is the kind of fear you feel when you hear something smash in the kitchen, and you're up in your bedroom, and you're like, someone's breaking in. That kind of fear, someone's going to hurt you. Someone's out to get you. That kind of fear. And there's the fear when you smash something that your dad said don't touch, and then you hear your dad's footsteps coming down the stairs. Is he going to kill you? He's not going to kill you. Why are you afraid then? Because you don't mess with dad. And he teaches me rules because he loves me and he disciplines me and chastises me be precisely because he's my dad, precisely because he loves me. If he didn't love me, he wouldn't care what rules I followed or didn't follow. So there's two kind of fears. And he's saying, don't fear him like he's a robber, a thief, a murderer, he's here to kill you. But do fear him like respect, reverence, the holy God that he is. That's why God is doing this to you. What do we call that? We call that worship. So the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. What do I say that's worship? We like to say, oh, the time of worship this morning was great. And we're usually referring to the songs, the singing. Well, that's a part of worship. But worship is ascribing the worship of God, how he is worthy. And everything we do, say, think, how we act can be worshipful. Or not. It can be God-directed. It can be a reflection of who God is. We can image-bear in what we do, think, and say, or not. If we image-bear in it, that's reflecting the glory and beauty of God. If we go, now nah, I'm going to do something else, and we turn the mirror and reflect ourselves or reflect something else, then we're worshiping something else. Worship is how we live, how we act, how we think. It's these Ten Commandments. So these Ten Commandments are a profile of God so that we know who we're worshiping and how we're supposed to worship God. Don't worship him some other way. Worship him this way. So each commandment speaks to that. We're going to walk through them. Verse 3, first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. This is God. Remember, the, he rescued them out of Egypt, a place where they were polytheists. They had many gods. A God for fertility, a God for the river, a God for the sun, a God for beetles, a God for frogs. They had all kinds of gods. And he's saying, I don't need to be in a pantheon of gods. I'm not like Zeus and I need like this person to help with that, this person to help with war. But you know, if any of them get out of line, I kind of throw lightning bolts at them. He, he's not a team of different gods. He's it. Don't have anything next to me. There is no second and third place. Don't have anything before me, in front of me. Nothing will take priority over me. There are no other things or persons or deities in your life that can replace me, match me, be next to me, or even come second place. No gods before me. 
verse 4 gives us commandment number 2. Okay? We're not supposed to reflect any other image except the image of God. That was commandment number 1. Commandment number 2 is we worship Him His way and not our way. We don't dumb Him down into something. We worship Him for what He is. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. If you get this second commandment wrong, your great, great, great grandkids are going to feel the consequences. Don't do it. Mess with my worship. You read throughout the Bible and you see that there's this proclivity, this bent that humans have to dumb God down into some form. They do it with a golden calf in several chapters. We'll see that later. That wasn't them saying, forget the God who saved us out of Egypt. Let's worship some other God. We'll call it a golden calf. They were saying, this golden calf is the God that brought us out of Egypt. Yeah, there he is. He looks like a calf. Let's, worship. let's make him into something familiar, four legs and a face, something that's an object that we can come and sit around him and we can pat it and mold it and shape it and throw flowers at it. Never mind this, never mind this invisible, dark cloud, foggy thing. That's weird what Moses had going on. Let's, let's make God into something else. This is a dumbing down of Yahweh into something manageable. So the first commandment is don't have other gods. The second commandment is don't make me into another god. Worship me for who I am. If you're going to reflect my image, you can't curve the image into what you want to reflect. Reflect me, all of me, in a pure way. And verse 7, commandment number 3. God reveres his own name. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So you have this holy name, this name that commands reverence, and we're not supposed to use it in an empty way, in a way that's devoid of worship. So, what's the big deal when a new pair of shoes, shoes come out and we say, oh my God. Are we saying, oh my God. You are so reverent, you are so holy that you created these Adidas. We're not saying that, right? We're dumbing God down and using his name in an empty way to refer to a dumb pair of shoes. So this has all kinds of ramifications. Obviously in the court of law, perjuring or saying I swear, you know, that kind of thing. Or saying I, on the Lord's name I swear this is true. You remember Jesus in the New Testament? Just don't say that. Just yes is yes and no is no. You don't have to invoke God's name and don't do that. So can we say God's name? Yes. Can we say God? Can we say Jesus? Yes. Mean it worshipfully. Verse 8. Commandment number 4. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any, any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your guests. 
For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. I'm going to save a lot of this for an upcoming sermon because Sabbath has already come up before. You remember when they couldn't collect manna on the Sabbath day? It's coming up now as a commandment and it's going to come up again periodically in the rest of Exodus, rest of the Bible. So we're going to devote an entire sermon to what this means for us today. But suffice it to say that God is saying, in the beginning, I created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. If you're going to reflect me, you're going to live a pattern that reflects that pattern. You're an image bearer. You don't say, God created in six, rested one, but I can work and work and work and fulfill the American dream and just push forward. I don't need rest. You're not better than God. Establish in your life the pattern that he established in creation. That's what this commandment is about. It's about image bearing. Then he has a list of shorter commandments, sort of rapid fire. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land and that the Lord God is giving you. It's like he's saying, look, I've put authority in your life. Don't buck your human authority pretending to reflect your celestial authority. Your celestial authority has given you human authority. Respect that human authority if you're going to respect me. Bear my image in that way. Verse 13, you shall not murder. We know the difference between killing and murder. He says you shall not murder, and there's murder all over this book, right? Atheists will tell you, it says do not murder, and he commands them to murder. Killing and murder are different. Murder is this act of premeditation, taking someone's life, when there's no cause for it. You're not rescuing someone to do it. You're not saving a village to do it. It's not a just war. It's because you wanted something. It's because you were too angry. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. How do you reflect me in not committing adultery? Because God is faithful. So you be faithful. What about when my partner's not faithful first? What about when my partner's really annoying? What about when my partner is a nagging person? Are you a nagging people? Are you an annoying people? Do you betray me all the time? Yes. What am I like? I'm faithful to my people. You're faithful to your spouse. Reflect me in your marriage. Verse 15, you shall not steal. God doesn't steal. If I thought God takes whatever he wants, that's because everything's his. Where we're different from God is not everything's mine. So I can't take what I want. God divvies, divvies things up the way he sees fit, and we need to be content with that. We reflect God by not taking what's not ours. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor because God is truth, and God speaks truth. And if we're going to reflect him in worshipful lives, we will not speak falsehood against our neighbor. And then verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, I, I get a chuckle out of this. Some of the commandments are don't murder. And some of them are don't covet your neighbor's house, don't covet your neighbor's car, don't covet your neighbor's Facebook account, don't covet your neighbor's Twitter followers, don't cover your neighbor's... It's like he's covering this big list, right? He did that in the Sabbath commandment. Don't you work. Don't make your daughter work. <laughs> don't kick it down your female servants. I'm not allowed to work, but you, you, go, you go ahead. 
you're still breaking the commandment, right? And so he's trying to make sure they don't have wiggle room. Don't covet. Well, I don't really covet. How about your neighbor's house? How about your neighbor's wife? How about his servant? How well off he is. He has male servants. He has female servants. And you wish you had that. You wish you had that affluence. You wish you could live in that community that's gated, that house that has that many stories. You wish you had that job, that corner office. So he's, he's trying to give them practical examples. And it gets down to don't covet his ox. Don't covet his donkey. <laughs> It'd be hard to think of when I'm just, man, I just wish I had that mule. But look at that mule, man. I just wish I could take that. Why does he have that mule? I don't know. They didn't have cars back then, right? Don't covet anything that is your neighbor's. You can like it. You can appreciate it. You can slap them on the back and be like, man, that's awesome. That's awesome. That's cool. I'm glad you have that. But if you go home stewing, I wish I had that. How come I don't have that? That's covetousness. So God lays out these Ten Commandments. And he says, look, you don't do these things because this is what I hate. This is what I don't like. This is what I want you to live like. And I'm not like that. And so you don't live like that. So this is how we worship. The Ten Commandments are a summary of how we worship a God. It gives us a profile of what he's like what his expectations are so we can worship him. Now here's one thing that kind of break this down. The, the Ten Commandments are in two tables. The first four laws and then the last six laws. Okay, the two tablets, you have the first four laws and then the second six laws. The first four laws are vertical. They're Godward. Don't have any other gods before him. Don't make him into some other kind of God. You're not going to take his name in vain and you're going to keep his holy day. And then the next six laws are horizontal. This is how you're going to behave with others. This is how you're going to behave with your neighbor. And so first and foremost, your mother, your own mother and your own father, you honor them, and you don't murder each other, you don't cheat on each other, you don't steal from each other, you don't lie about each other, you don't covet one another. Horizontal stuff. Why is it laid out that way? Well, a couple of reasons. One is that the vertical laws demand the horizontal laws. In other words, if you say you're worshiping God, then you must love your neighbor. If you hate your neighbor and say you love God, what does John say you are? A liar, right? First John. But also, the horizontal stuff requires the vertical stuff, and that's why the vertical stuff comes first. We don't just go, okay, I'm going to love my neighbor, I'm going to love my neighbor. We need to get this aligned first, this vertical relationship with God first. This worship has to be happening first for us to effectively be able to love one another this way. How do I stay the temptation to have a murderous rage in my heart towards someone else. I need this first. Is God just? Does God avenge? Yes, he does avenge. Does God have wrath? He does have wrath. Let him do it. Let him do it, and you stay out of it. See, if I have this, then I can do the other one. How about covetousness? Is God a good provider? Is he good to me? 
Does he provide me with what I need? Does he know how much I can handle without getting distracted or cocky or too focused on material things? He does. He's a good shepherd, and I shall not want when I walk with him. I'm not going to have wants. When he's my shepherd, I'm not going to have wants. This first, he's my shepherd first, then I don't have wants. So how do I not covet other people's stuff? Know the shepherd first, right? So the vertical stuff produces the horizontal stuff. Jesus confirms that. We'll put this up on the screen. Matthew 22, 35 to 40. Jesus confirms that. When a lawyer asked him this question, an expert in the Old Testament law, which was a big debate back then, which is the greatest commandment? Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So here's the argument back then. Which is the greatest commandment? Is it the first one? Is it the last one? The Sabbath one? Is it the murder one? Murder so bad. That's got to be the top one, right? Which is the top one? Which is the worst? Which is the best? Which is the one that, if you had to only pay attention to one, which one would it be? And Jesus comes outside of the Ten Commandments, quotes Deuteronomy and says, Love the Lord your God. That summarizes the first table. That's the vertical one. And he says the second is like it. Love your neighbor. That summarizes the second table. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to covet your neighbor. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to murder your neighbor. If you love your neighbor, your spouse, you're not going to cheat on her. Right? So loving your neighbor summarizes the second one, but it comes second after the most important, which is the first table, loving God. Here's how you love God. Have nothing before him down into something that's manageable. Keep his holy day and respect his name. Now, we look at this list and we were honest with ourselves, right? If we look at it too fast, we're like, oh, I keep that one, keep that one. Mm, I may have broken that one once. I keep that one, I keep that one. We got it all wrong. We don't keep any of this. We, we, we don't keep any of this perfectly. On some level and in some way, we're consistently breaking all of these. Why do I say that? Well, I say that first because you remember in Matthew 5, Jesus is teaching his famous Sermon on the Mount, and he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, if you did it in your heart, you already did it. And then we go, man, I thought Jesus was supposed to kind of get us off the law, and he's making the law harder. Because what Jesus is doing, he's taking some external action and we felt we were safe. As long as I don't do that external action, I'm safe. And Jesus is turning it inward and saying, no, 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 it's how your heart reflects the image of God or doesn't reflect the image of God. You've already broke the commandment if your heart is already not reflecting God's heart. And so if you commit adultery in your heart, you've already broken the commandment. Jesus isn't making that up. Jesus is interpreting what's already there. Let me show you. Look at commandment number one. Commandment number one, and here's my question to you. Is this a matter of the heart, or is this a matter of physical action? Here's the command. Verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. Is that a heart matter or a physical matter? It's mainly a heart matter. 
Because even if there's not an idol in the room or, or something in the room to worship, it's a matter of your heart, that there's something else first before God. That's a heart matter. Look at commandment number 10. You shall not covet outward action or heart. It's hard to see covetousness, right? Oh, a nice car, man. I'm glad you got that. <laughs> oh, it's good for you, man. Good for you. Inside the heart is where I'm going. I wish that was mine. Right? So God bookends the Ten Commandments with number one and number ten heart issues. And I think what Jesus was doing was showing that that's not just commandment number one and number ten. It's bookended to point the flashlight onto the other eight to show you, wait a minute, these are all heart issues. If something ends up in murder, where did that start? If I commit adultery, where did that start? It started with either number one or number ten. God wasn't enough for you. You started worshiping something else, and I'm calling it covetousness. So if you break any of the commandments, you've broken them all because they're a unit. They're not ten random ones. They flow together. And it's a matter of the heart. And because it's a matter of the heart, it traps us. The law is scary because in revealing what God is like, it also at the same time reveals what we're not like. I don't, I don't gravitate toward that. I do other things. I like to covet. I like to do just what's easiest to get out of a problem. If it means steal, if it means lie, honesty is difficult when it's going to cost me something. I'd rather not do that. So the law reveals our inability to worship God. Looking back on it, it's silly when he reveals himself to them and he says, we're going to be in a covenant relationship. This is chapter 19, and you're going to obey. Are you going to obey? Yes, we will obey. And then he starts giving them this laws, and they already are not even there. They're like ready to take off. They're pushing back from the edge of the mountain. And then you're going to see we don't leave Exodus before they break all, they break all of them. And we're no different. We look at that and we realize, man, I've not always told the truth. I've coveted things. I've taken things that aren't mine or wanted to. Adultery, a matter of the heart, we lose. Have I always honored my mother and father? Have I always honored my mother and father? Th this, is, this is a list of convictions, man. <laughs> this, is, this is a list of what we don't do and what we're not as much as it is a list of what God is like and what he expects of us. It reveals that we can't do it because the law cannot convert you the law can only convict you. The law can't convert you, change you, transform you. It can only convict you and make you guilty. We know that just before even leaving this text, but Paul reminds us, we're going to look at a couple verses here, Romans 7, verse 7. Look what Paul says. What shall we say, that the law is sin? No, the law isn't. There's nothing wrong with the law, by no means. But if it had not been for the law... I wouldn't have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law didn't say, you shall not covet. So what's Paul saying? You're trapped. 
God has revealed to you that covetousness is wrong, and now that you know it's wrong, you can't help but covet and know that you did it. The law just shines a flashlight on your sinful heart. Click, click, right there. You see that? That's dirty. That's unholy. Don't do that. I hate that. Problem is, it's there. So the law convicts us and makes us guilty. It doesn't free us. So why does Paul say, well, there's, there's nothing wrong with the law. There's nothing sinful with the law. Because God put the law there to point us to our need for the gospel. In other words, he wants you to feel trapped and sense your inability to live these Ten Commandments so that he can give you what you need to live the Ten Commandments. If we stay stuck in this Ten Commandments, okay, I got this, I got this. As long as I don't disobey these ten, I'm pretty good. Yeah, probably, but you can't. And God wants to reveal to you that you can't. But once he has you there, now you're ready for the rescue. Now you're ready for the solution to the problem. If you don't sense the problem, then you can't get the solution. It's not going to be good news to you. Jesus will not be good news to you if you think you can follow the law. But when you recognize that the law has you pinned in the corner and you need a way out, now the gospel is refreshing news. How does it do that? Ephesians chapter 3. A couple verses in there, 21 to 22. Here's how the law points us to Jesus. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The Ten Commandments can't give you life. They can only show you why you deserve death. But the Scripture, the law, God's Word, what He's revealed, imprisoned, there's the trap, imprisoned everything under sin. Why? Why did He do that? Why did He reveal stuff to us that we can't do? For the trap. Why, why the trap? So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That's why. He wants to get you to the gospel. I can't do this stuff. There's one who can. There's one who has. His name is Jesus. And you can escape the trap of death, not by working your way out and following the laws. You've already broken them. But by placing your faith in the one who has completely upheld the law on your behalf, and more than that, has taken the punishment that we deserve for breaking the law. He did both. And this isn't just a New Testament thing. God promised this freedom from the trap in the Old Testament. Last verse we'll look at, Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. Here's the promise that Jesus fulfills. God is telling his people, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will, that I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You can't do it. I'm going to make you do it. You can't do it. I'm going to prompt you to do it. I'm going to cause you to do it. How is God going to cause us to do it? Heart transplant. You have a heart of stone that can't help but be covetous. You have a heart of stone that can't help but worship other gods. We can't help it. Until Jesus Christ fulfills this promise in us, regenerates us, brings us back to life, brings us to life. We're dead. 
makes us alive to God with this indwelling Holy Spirit so that now we can forget the Ten Commandments and say, I'm happy. Nope. So that now I can live the Ten Commandments where I couldn't or I couldn't even tell when I was breaking them before. My stony heart couldn't even tell that that was covetous right there. That stony heart couldn't even tell that I'm already cheating on my spouse in my mind. This heart that pumps, right? And it's, it's the vitality there, and there's life there now. I can tell when something's wrong. I can tell when something's not right in my heart. I can take that to God. And the power that is offered to me through the gospel, through the indwelling spirit, purchased and provided for me by Jesus Christ, allows me to live a life now that fits God's profile in Exodus 20. So what do we do with the law? We got a lot of law coming up. Look ahead. Start doing some devotions in the rest of Exodus and feel, feel my pain. Because all the fun stuff we got it done, right? The plagues and the, and the wilderness, the Red Sea and all this stuff. That, that's all done. Now we got altars, priestly garments, tabernacle measurements. I shouldn't even be saying this because I want you guys to come, right? I want you guys to like, hey, we're going to church. This is going to be great. It is going to be. Because what this means is not that the law is irrelevant. Jesus came and now the law, the law is irrelevant. The law means nothing for us now. It means more to us now because we can actually live this stuff now. It's not a trap for us anymore. Instead, now it's a profile we can meet. Now it's a profile that we can live and say, through Jesus Christ, my faith in Him, not through my own works, but through my faith in Christ, my life can now reflect what God is like. That is awesome. What an awesome privilege that we have to be able to conquer sin in our lives and stamp it out. If we have hang-ups and habits that are still nipping at our heels, it's not because we can't overpower it. It's maybe because we don't want to. It's maybe because we've been ignoring it. It's maybe because we've been trying human effort and not faith in Christ. But it is a lie to think that there are just certain things that we just, it just, that sin has my number. Every time it comes knocking, I just can't help it. You can't, but that new heart that you have in Christ is possible. You don't have to sin. You are not a slave to sin anymore. So they looked at this law, and they wanted to back off the mountain. We look at it, and we want to delight in it. We want to live like that. We want our lives to look like that. Not because God is giving us a bunch of do's and don'ts, but because God is saying, I'm beautiful. And this is what want you to be like that this is going to be beautiful for your life so this is how we worship him obeying the law through christ amen